Welcome to Future Curious from Nesta, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. I'm Tian and Duya. And the list of innovations that were started in the UK is a very, very long one. I mean, to reel off just a few, uh, there's First Aid, the World Wide Web and Pickled Onion Crisps, the greatness of which is undisputed. Don't at me. But while we might be chart-topping innovators, are we socially-minded, inclusive and diverse ones? Are people being left out and ignored during the designing and developing process? Are we listening and responding to what people actually need and want? I mean, for example, weirdly, not everyone likes pickled onion crisps, so you should probably have at least one more flavour, right? On this week's show, we're going to be looking at exactly why innovation needs to become more, well, innovative and inclusive. Just how do we go about making that happen and what are the barriers that get in the way? Spoiler, it probably doesn't help when people like me demean your life-changing invention by comparing it to crisps. Sorry, everyone. Let's get started, shall we? Joining me is Madeleine Gabriel, who's Head of Inclusive Innovation at Nesta. Madeleine, I know it's a current zeitgeist to be positive about things, even if they aren't so great, but there is some good news, right? I mean, the UK is still a very good place for innovation, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the UK was ranked as the fifth most innovative country in this year's Global Innovation Index. And um, we've got something like four of the world's top 10 universities, even though we've got less than 1% of the world's population. And we produce about a sixth of the cited scientific works that are produced worldwide. Business innovation's pretty good too. Enterprise births, the share of the UK economy, are double the EU rate. So on most measures that people count, we do pretty well. Right. So Britannia rules the brainwaves. No? Okay, right. Uh, From the looks Madeleine's giving me, I've got a feeling that we can't really rest on our laurels. So how are we getting innovation wrong then, Madeleine? Well, the way I see it, there's at least three big problems and they're linked together. So I think part of the time we invest in the wrong things. People who invest in innovation, policymakers, they really like big, shiny, prestige projects. And we've called this in the past the Concord problem, where you invest in something that's, you know, really, really high tech, looks great, but only benefits a few people. And the idea in the past has always been that, well, those benefits after time, you know, those that technology become cheaper and it'll benefit more people. But we don't always see that happening. Another problem is doing things wrong. (laughs) So (laughs) designing stuff that actually just doesn't meet people's needs or actively excludes some people or even endangers them. I think some of our listeners might have seen um, Caroline Criado Perez's brilliant book called Invisible Women that, that really talks about how a lot of innovations or technologies are designed around this idea of a default male as if you know an average male is the only potential user. And in some cases, that's been really dangerous. So things like crash test dummies built around the average male body mean that women are actually much more likely to be seriously injured in road crashes than men. Now, obviously, as you just mentioned, that's a very important reasons why this needs to change. But why is this an area that you're very passionate about and what do you want to see? I work for Nestor. I genuinely believe that innovation can be a force for good, um, but it can also reinforce or increase divisions in society. So if you've got things like smartphones that leave poor people more vulnerable because cheaper tech doesn't have such good security or algorithms that are more likely to send black people to jail, you know, that's reinforcing all of those existing divisions in our society. And then at a more personal level, it's just really frustrating seeing so much investment going to useless things that we don't need. And there's all these problems that we do need to solve. I mean, people might have seen this um, juice maker, Juicero, that came into the news a couple of years ago. And the idea was that it's a $400 machine that would juice these pre-packed 
packs, I guess, of, of fruit and vegetables. And then when people actually finally got the thing, it, they found that it was easier to squeeze the packs by hand than put them <laughs> in the machine. And, and obviously it's rightfully mocked, but it's super wasteful and it got a huge amount of investments and like $120 million of investment. So, you know, we're getting that, but we're not getting stuff. We do need like a male pill. And it's, yeah, it's just really annoying. That's a lot of money just so people can squeeze sachets of juice. Isn't yeah, exactly. It? Yeah. If we know that men are more likely to work in innovation and engineering, then it's sadly no surprise that the needs of women are often overlooked. Case in point, engineer and innovator Nicola Miller was startled by the lack of products for women hitting menopause, despite the clear need for a product to help them cope with the experience of hot flushes. So to solve that problem, Nicola and her team have been developing a product called Pebble. The Nesta team went to eavesdrop on Nicola and Pebble user Emily as they discussed how menopause has affected them and how listening to feedback has changed product development. Okay, should we start? I think we might as well. Okay, oh, it's great to see you again. Anyway. And you, and you, it's been a while. I think it has about 18 months, hasn't yeah, it? Or yeah, thereabouts. yeah, yeah. Um, when we had the sort of workshop up here in Newcastle. We did at the Centre for Life, yeah. Yeah, that's good, yeah. So we were doing some stuff about menopause and learning some new things for me because yeah. I was learning lots and there were lots of people in the room that uh, were all sharing different experiences and different stories and some of it got quite emotional as well. It did um, because some of those yeah. ladies hadn't really spoken to anybody about no. what they were going through. That's right. Some and that was had, what was so sad, wasn't it? They, yeah, it was. Some of them had never ever told a, a single soul. No. You know, they'd never told anyone at all what they were experiencing and how debilitating it was for their life. Yeah. So um, that was quite sad, but also it was quite uplifting that they felt able to share that. With, with a so, room full of strangers. With, yeah. <laughs> well, there were a few people in the room that kind of knew each yeah, other yeah. or knew of each other working at the university. But uh, yeah, it was really quite an uplifting experience, I think. It was. And we came was away with so much uh, information and insights into, you know, what everybody was going through, what their individual experiences were. And, you know, what they felt could help them manage, you know, the symptoms, particularly like hot flushes that they were going through. Yeah. So having not worked with the voice sort of uh, organisation before, mm. it was great, actually, to have yeah. uh, so many uh, different views there. Yeah, because we also had um, Mira from the National Centre for Innovation and Ageing there as well. Yeah. And, you know, I know she's done quite a lot of research on, on menopause, and so she gave us a little bit of a lowdown on what it was, and then you guys pitched in with some stuff as well. And That's right. It was really, really informative. Yeah. It kind of started me on a, on a journey. Yeah, because I, um, I don't know if I'm... Did I remember right? You were sort of at the start of all this, yeah. weren't you? I think you were definitely one of the youngest. I was definitely there. one of the youngest, and I'm still one of the youngest right. <laughs> <laughs> out of anybody that I know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I came with one uh, where the colleague had seen it and had said to me, I think, you know, I'm thinking of going to this, and she was right in the middle of going yeah. through menopause. And she said, and I know you've kind of mentioned that you've had a couple of hot flushes. Why don't you come along? It looks really interesting. And so we did go along and learned so much. And, and actually, a lot of it, that hot started me on a whole journey of actually thinking, you know what, this is my next stage in life. I need to find out what on earth is going to be happening to yes. me. Because I'm hearing all of these things from these women that were sharing stuff. And I was thinking, oh, goodness me, right, OK, this isn't talked about. There were quite a lot of ladies in that workshop that mm. had tried things like HRT yeah. or, uh, well, it was one contingent that had tried it and, you know, hadn't worked for them. Yes. And then there were others that were perhaps more in the camp of, I don't want to use, uh, you know, hormone replacement therapy and drugs and things for, to manage this. I want to do it myself. It's a natural thing. Yes. And I think that's what sort of started to get us thinking about trying to develop a product that would help ladies manage yeah. um, their symptoms, not yeah. not do away with them in any way, but just help them be a bit more comfortable and take control, really. Yeah. So I think that's where the sort of pebble idea came from. 
what I found really great about what you're doing with the project you're working on is the amount of and I know you were commenting earlier that it's it's taking ages and you're frustrated by that mm. but I think it's from my point of view as the user I'm I'm heartened by that because for me that makes me think well you're doing it properly then you know, some, there's some thought gone there's into some it. thought gone yeah, into it you're testing right. it and yeah. you're making sure things are safe and you know all of those things that all the all the research that goes behind it as well yeah. which yeah. was really good good from my Excellent. point of view as a user <laughs> yeah so so we've now taken it a little bit further yeah. and um sort of in the last few days we sent your unit through to try out and it's very much a prototype unit yeah but it's something that you could actually use in your home because of course up till now we showed you some sort of functional prototypes but they were very much for use under supervision in sure. a laboratory or in in a workshop environment and yeah the actual thing was easy to use mm. um, I found it easy to use and it helped me Right. Know, with with a, when I was experiencing a hot flush, it, it helped to cool me down quicker. Right. Okay. Much quicker than just you know fanning myself with my hands or getting the little desk electric fan out and waving that yeah. around, or yeah. the kids going, "Mummy, what are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> um, I climb as well, so that's oh, my right. sport. I'm a climber, right. so I've experienced it halfway oh, no. up a rock face, yes. which is not fun. No. Um, when I'm already fighting back fear and panic because I'm scared of heights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you is... think that exasperates it? Yes, Do I think, think that it does. Brings, yeah. So I'm I'm very lucky. I have um, very understanding climbing partners. Yes. <laughs> Who <laughs> kind of know? I've, I've briefed them. They know. Yeah. So they kind of go, uh, "You're right." Or do you need to come down? Yeah, I think I need to come down. Because yes, yes. <laughs> normally I need to drink water quite quite quickly to yeah. try try anything to cool down. If you yeah. if you because you need to get some coolness yeah. in some form, which is what was great about doing the user trial with the pebble. Yeah, is that it was instant coolness. I was thinking, oh, I think that's the idea. If we yeah. can get something that is, you know almost real time, you feel it coming on, and if you can just sort of then put this pebble against your skin and it provides some instant cooling, yeah. the hope is that really it will actually just nip that hot flush. What's been really interesting sort of over my career is when I started as an engineer, sort of briefs for things were very much um, requirements passed down by marketing and people like that. Right. Um, and that was a separate department. And now what we're finding actually is that a lot of the projects we take on, we really are beginning to start in the way we did with Pebble, which was to go to the user yeah. first and say, okay, we think this is an issue and there's a few people suffering from this, mm. you know, do you agree? It was very simple, really. I started to have hot flushes myself, and I found that I was pretty regularly, you know, every hour or so, throwing open the window at work. And I thought, you know, what is it I really need to help me with this? And I need some cooling. So it sort of then led me back to, you know, the situation where you want to try and cool yourself down. How do you do that? So you put your wrist perhaps underneath a cold running water tap. Yeah. And then I thought, right. Let's make a device that you can put on your wrist and it will cool you down. So that was a starting point for it, really. And then after the workshop, we sort of showed this idea of a sort of wrist-worn device, didn't we, around? Yes, and everybody I, went, I remember. Oh, no, that's not what we want. We don't want it just restricted to the wrist. Mm -hmm. The wrist isn't really where we're feeling hot. It's actually, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, on the chest, up yeah. the neck and the face. Decolletage. And therefore, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes. And so um, fundamentally, you know, we need a device that we can put where we want to. And, and you can move it around. You can move it around. Mm. It's not strapped to your wrist. You know, I thought simplistically that having it as a watch or something would be a great idea but of course nobody wants to be seen wearing this thing anyway mm -hmm. so that's sort of where the idea sort of spun out from and then 
obviously from the feedback from the workshop, we realised that what was needed was a quite a small little device with a number of shots in it of cooling that mm -hmm. you could take around and not use on every occasion, but for one or two of these get out of jail situations like public transport, yeah. if you're in the theatre yeah. and the at a concert or something uh, where a lecture, <laughs> a lecture, yeah. giving a actual talk or yeah. what have you, and something that you can take with you discreetly in your pocket or mm -hmm. in the bag. So that sort of then sort of dictated the size a little bit, mm -hmm. and then really we started to think just about the format of it and whether you could design something that would sort of sit inside your hand so you could use it reasonably discreetly. And that really was sort of the, the start of the idea. And then I was in a colleague's office and she got some pebbles on the windowsill that she brought back from the beach. Oh, really? And one of them was just such a lovely shape. And I put it in my hand, it just felt so nice. And I don't know if you've felt pebbles, yes, but they yes. also feel quite cool. They do. But weighty, you yes. know, and, and comforting. Yes. And that's where the name Pebble came from. Nicola Miller and Emily in conversation on location in Newcastle. And our thanks to the National Innovation Centre for Ageing and the Voice Participant Workshop team for their help in getting everyone together. Madeline, that sort of development of the pebble uh, that Nicola Miller and her team did, is that the sort of inclusive innovation that, that we should be looking to do? Yes, I mean, one reason why I think that example is so interesting is, first of all, that the people developing the product in the first place, as you said, have had some personal experience of the issue, that they've really thought the first step has to be to speak to other people who have that problem or experiencing those symptoms and want to you know, find solutions for it and are really being driven by the users in terms of what the technology can do. And I love the way that Nicola described what it used to be like in product development, that they'd get a specification from marketers and, and they'd only really test a prototype with users when it was already quite developed. I think this example is so great that they're able to build up working prototypes from an early stage and get feedback throughout the process. I'm delighted to be joined by Simi Awakoya and Nicola Miller in the studio. Simi is the founder of Witty Careers, which encourages women from BAME backgrounds to consider careers in coding and technology. She's also one of Nesta's 12 women shaping AI and one of Forbes's 30 under 30. And Nicola, who we've already heard from, is from Cambridge Consultants and the inspiration behind the pebble. Simi, Madeline, Nicola, we've talked about how the UK is a world leader in innovation. So Simi, why should we care about changing the way that it's done? From a technology perspective especially, technology impacts so many different industries, so financial services, retail, healthcare, and we have to make sure the products and solutions we're creating are best serving the users or the customers. This means not only do we have to make sure the products and services are impactful, but we also have to make sure the people behind the products and services represent that user base to make sure we are serving them most efficiently. Nicola, as someone who had relevant experience of the issue that you created a product for. Do you agree, Simi? Uh, 100%, actually. I think in the past, we haven't focused enough on users and understanding really what their needs are. And we have just uh, often been science-led and, you know, fitting shoehorning solutions into products. And that's just something cut anymore. I'd add to that, I think, you know, we can't afford not to diversify innovation. You know, we've got a huge amount of talent, basically, that's not being used. And then culturally, you know, if we don't have um, a wide range of people involved in innovation, whether as, you know, users in the development process or it's innovators themselves, then we're going to, you know, propagate stereotypes. And, you know, we have this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy idea of who's shaping the future. I mean, that goes to your point, Simi. And then obviously, as I've said before, I mean, if 
users aren't involved in product development, then the solutions aren't going to be optimal. <laughs> and, um, you know, they can perpetuate bias and all of those things. So I really agree with the points made. I think it's also very important, actually, that the right users are involved. I think in the past, perhaps we've used more traditional demographics. And I think that's sort of changing a bit now. For instance, if I was designing a kitchen product or something a generation ago we would have known who that was aimed at we'd have known you know it was generally mother at home and we'd have known if we were pitching a product the sort of lifestyle she led etc now things have changed quite a lot and actually what how uh, we have to look at things is more uh, looking at people with different mindsets so you're not actually just looking at their sort of uh, financial ability to buy things and the group they're in but you actually have to think how different groups you know are accepting products so it's not just designing things for people who've previously been ignored by innovation but it's also adapting to a changing society absolutely exactly yes. and simi why do you think it's important for more BAME women to get into the tech world? Um, I can just recount my experience to start with. So starting my career, I realised that I didn't have a lot of role models. Let's start, let's start it off with that. I would go to technology events to find out more about certain industries and they would always be pointing to one direction. So if it's a women's event, there will be loads of women, but no black women. And if it's a minority event, so black and minority ethnic focused there will be so many men, but not enough women. <laughs> and I realised there needed to be a space that encouraged people that look like me from BME backgrounds to have representation. So what Witty Careers does is Witty Careers is an organisation that focuses on equipping BME women with the skills to succeed in technology and start careers in the industry. And I really wish you luck with that because what you've just described is what was the situation when I started really in engineering 40 years ago. I felt very much in that position where there were no role models and um, really was it the career for me. And I can absolutely emphasise it definitely is a really good career for women <laughs> of all ages. Fantastic. Good to hear. With this sort of, uh, you've been in the engineering industry for a while, as you just mentioned, have you seen lots of examples about how innovation has been done wrong because the people behind it perhaps didn't care about the users or weren't focused on the right people to create um, things? I think the Pebble project that we highlighted is a fine example and I don't think we've quite got that right because it has been, I have to say, quite a struggle to actually persuade people that this is a product that's worth developing. And it's purely, as Madeline mentioned at the start, a lot of the people funding these projects have not had this experience of these symptoms or understand you know, what that particular group of people are, are going through. And I think that is so critical. So it's not just the, the developers, you know, the engineers, the innovators themselves that have kind of some blind spots. It's people making decisions about what to fund and, you know, what products to, to pursue and which ones to let drop. Yes, I think all it emphasises is that you have to include as many people as you possibly can at the start of the project because all inputs are really valuable. Mm. But you get to a stage where you do need funding and unfortunately at the moment a lot of funding, particularly as you know for femtech products and the like... We're having to go to boards of men who don't perhaps quite understand the issue, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Madeline, who is going into innovation at the moment? And, you know, who are the majority of innovators? Well, we haven't got great data on that. And one of the statistics that we use a lot is, um, is patenting to 
talk about who's innovating. Um, and some good news is that the the number of or the proportion of women filing patents in the UK has doubled over the last 20 years. The bad news is it's doubled from 4% to 8%. So <laughs> it's really not changed very much in 20 years. And it's, it's really... And Nesta's recently done some work looking at women in AI. So Simi was part of us, um, a series of case studies of women in, in that field. And we've also looked at who's publishing AI research. And again, we found really low proportions of women amongst researchers. I think 14% of papers were were published or co-published by female authors. So yeah, really real massive gender imbalance. And then we don't have great stats on other elements of diversity, actually on, on BME or on people with disabilities or anything else. But, you know, we can assume that the representation is pretty low. I'm just going to interrupt slightly there because we we put a patent through for Pebble and it is going through at the moment. And I got a letter the other day to tell me about its progress and it wrote, Dear Sir. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, Case in point. Yeah. So maybe there are a lot more of us out there, but uh, we're just yeah. not actually being put in the right group. Good point. Something to add, actually, as part of my role as a solution architect, what I find is when you're actually building products, it seems like innovation is the intersection of three core pillars, desirability, viability and feasibility. So if you think about it, desirability is if your stakeholders or users actually want the product you're building. Feasibility is can it actually be done? Can this be built with the technology we want to build it with? And viability is can we make a business out of this? So viability is, is this profitable? Is it going to make us money? Is it going to be a self-sustaining business? And when you think about it in those three ways, you can actually see that innovation isn't one dimensional. There are so many facets to it. Um, You can also make sure the way you're kind of designing your products are the best way. And there's a framework called design thinking, which is a really, really great way of making sure you're creating impactful, innovative products. Simi, that's really interesting what you said about feasibility, viability and desirability. At Nesta, we've got something we call the innovation spiral and it it takes you through um, a series of steps in the innovation process. So starting from understanding the problem and thinking about potential solutions to working through to making a case, a business case for something um, and then testing it and then eventually taking it to scale. So it's a really similar type of approach. Diversity and inclusivity isn't just on the UK's innovation agenda. Alex Glennie is from Nesta's Inclusive Innovation Team. And recently, Alex went to Vietnam to work on a project with the UN Development Programme. Here are Alex's reflections on the diversity of diversity. I'm in Hanoi, standing outside the mausoleum of Ho Chi Minh, the founding father of modern Vietnam. A lot of people associate this country with its past. I studied the colonial period and the American War during my undergraduate degree and it's been interesting and very sobering to see some of the memorials to that time. But I'm really here this week to think about the future of Vietnam and the wider region it's a part of. This year, Nesta has been working with the UN Development Programme, UNDP, to understand what local models of inclusive innovation look like in Southeast Asia. Vietnam's a fascinating place to study from this perspective. Its major cities are buzzing with entrepreneurial energy, alongside the traffic you can hear in the background. GDP growth was more than 7% in 2018, and it has a youthful and diverse population. Young people aged 21 to 34 make up around a quarter of the population, and there are more than 50 recognised ethnic groups. But there are still high levels of concern about poverty, and inequality levels are on the rise. So inclusive innovation here has quite a different character than in countries across Europe. You talk about inclusion and diversity with innovation policymakers in the UK, you quickly get into discussions about gender and how to get more women to apply for funding and start innovative businesses. But in Vietnam, a much broader debate is being had. 
One of the interesting companies I spoke to this week was a software startup called Enable Code. Their vision is to transform the way Vietnamese society perceives people with disabilities. They aren't doing that through charity work though, but by running a profitable business. They work with NGOs to identify skilled individuals with disabilities and then quickly train them to work as computer freelancers so that they can do technology, projects, business processing and AI-enabled work from home. The UK could learn a lot from this approach. Businesses like this are thinking about inclusion not just from the perspective of developing products or services that will benefit people who are marginalised in society, but actively involving these people as participants in the innovation economy. Alex Glenny in Hanoi. So a question to, to, to you all in the studio. How can companies benefit from changing their approach to being more inclusive? Uh, Nicola? Um, I think if we get everybody on board, particularly at the start, which is um, something that I'm very keen to do, so we include everybody at the start, I think you produce the best products that you can. Fundamentally, you also understand early if that product is not going to fly. And um, to a point that was made a bit earlier, Sometimes, actually, you know, you start a development and it's not going to work. And you want to understand that absolutely at the you know, earliest opportunity. Failure to get a product out there is not really failure. I echo every single thing Nicola said, but I would also like to add that inclusive teams build inclusive products. I feel with inclusive teams, you're making sure that everyone on the team is contributing because there are more ideas on the table, there's more criticism, everything is evaluated more thoroughly. I will say hiring is something that senior leaders should start taking very important at all levels of their organisation, junior to senior, mid-level as well, to make sure there are diverse teams that can build these products and can build these teams that are going to make sure that innovation is a kind of a concurrent theme throughout the work they do. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at the bigger picture, I mean, there's plenty of research that shows that diverse teams are more innovative. So if there's cognitive diversity, people think differently, you're going to be better at problem solving. So from a business perspective, it makes sense to have diversity amongst your, your innovation teams, at least. And then obviously, there's, there's the opportunity for businesses to open up new markets. So one of the um, Innovation support agencies that we talk to a lot who are based in Sweden have been working with companies to see if taking um, a gender lens gives them opportunities to apply their tech in different ways and open up new markets. It's a really interesting programme. And I think also PR, because, you know, we're seeing articles almost every day about how poor application of AI is you know, disadvantaging different groups. So it looks really bad for companies if they don't do this. But I would just make one more point. So I think um, inclusive innovation isn't just about companies' practices. Actually, it's about looking a little bit more broadly about and thinking more widely about who can innovate. <laughs> so, you know, see innovation happening in communities, in um, in charities, amongst, you know, social movements. You know, you, you can just do it at home. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff about user innovation and people hacking technology themselves and making something that fits their own purposes. So I think, you know, if we were taking a really inclusive approach to innovation policies in, in the UK, we wouldn't just think about supporting businesses. We'd think about how we could support innovation wherever it happens. I think another area of inclusivity is um, organisations like Voice, which is a network of citizens who can contribute um, experience and ideas and insights to help research and innovation. They come from a sort of cross-section of the community and uh, basically it's a voluntary organisation. But we worked with them when we were working on Pebble and the insights that we got from them were absolutely fascinating and totally critical in the, the direction we took for the project. We started by talking about what the UK is doing right and we've spoken about what we're getting wrong. So, what are the innovative measures that we need to fix the ways that innovation happens? Simi, what changes would you like to see happening in the tech industry? 
Personally, I feel we need to take advantage of starting where we are. There's so much data around us. We're collecting that from like different applications in factories, in hospitals, banks. Let's start using the data we have and trying to find insights based on that data. If we think of artificial intelligence, which I'm very passionate about, it's essentially using the data we have to create outcomes, collect insights and make predictions. If we start where we are with all the data we're collecting, you can think of so many ways we can actually get more insights from our data. Madeline, you've been doing research in the area of how to change innovation. So what are your recommendations? Well, Ernesto, we're really taking the big picture and thinking about what would need to change if we were to make sure that innovation benefits more people, that participation is really diverse and that the right people are involved in decision making. So I've got five things I'd mention, although there's loads more. We know that we need to start young. Um, So we need to get people thinking about innovation and developing skills for innovation really quite early on. Um, So one of the things that we've done some research on is how young people can develop ideas about what's possible for them and whether they're interested in innovation or not. What's quite important is having some exposure to innovation while you're young (laughs) and starting to see some of those role models and build connections with them. So one thing would definitely be getting innovation, I guess, on the curriculum at school, giving young people a chance to have a hands-on experience of it. There's loads of work being done about diversity in STEM and we know one of the key issues is not enough women and people from other underrepresented groups going into STEM subjects and STEM careers. One of the things that Nesta focuses on around this is about the idea of having an interconnected curriculum. So I think this goes to a point that Simi was making. Rather than necessarily pushing women and other groups down particular routes and forcing them to choose STEM subjects, you can also take STEM skills and and competences into subjects that people are studying, so things like history, for example. Then I think there's all the stuff about innovative firms getting close to users, which is really what we've discussed today. I'd like to see more funding programmes focusing towards innovation for and by underrepresented groups, so things like looking at low-cost innovations, looking for innovations for gender diversity. And then finally, I think the public need to be much more involved in deciding what innovation priorities are and and how money at a national level is spent, because I think this is a good way of making sure that where we invest really does reflect the priorities of, of a broad range of people and not just a kind of a niche group. And Nicola, where do you see all of this heading? Are you positive about the future of the innovation industry and the design process? Oh, very much so, yes. Yes, I think we're putting a lot more thought into how we go about uh, designing products now. And I think that means that we are going to end up making products that people really want, first off. I totally agree about the children side. And I think that really, you know, for children to start learning, we have actually have um, STEM come into our company, for instance, and they are such fun, organized, you know, trips when they sort of seven or eight year olds come in, the enthusiasm levels are so high. You know, why are they dampened later on? We, we need, you know, those children coming through. But let's not also forget the people right at the end of their careers as well, because I think they're a very valuable source of experience and also a big group that perhaps isn't sort of cast off a little bit at the end of their careers. And I think we ought to you know, continue having organisations like Voice and things where people feel they're still contributing to you know, not only technology, but society as well. And also speaking on the positive future of innovation, um, Simi, how do people get involved with Witty Careers and have you got any events coming up? Fantastic. So Witty Careers, you can find out more about us at wittycareers.org. In November, we're having a career clinic where we're focusing on helping women that are new to tech break into the industry. So mock coding interviews, application advice and CV and cover letter reviews. If any of this is applicable to you, please join us. And in December, we're going to be hosting a Women in Tech Social for women already in the industry to learn more about career progression and learn from leaders in the industry as well. 
And you can find all of those details in the podcast blurb attached. Thank you very much to our guests, Madeline Gabriel, Simi Awakoya and Nicola Miller for joining us today. If you've got an innovation story that you're proud of, we'd love to hear about it. Get in touch at futurecurious at nesta.org.uk. Next week, we're bringing you a backstage pass to the future of storytelling. But until then, remember, success comes from asking the people you aim to help what it actually is that they need and involving them in the process. Speaking of which, I'll have a bag of pickled onion crisps, please. Thanks for checking. Future Curious from Nesta, bringing bold ideas to life and straight into your ears. <laughs>